morning. I'm Brand Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, this winter and spring, we're in a series on the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We're picking up where we left off from last winter when we looked at Mark chapters 1 through 8. And this morning, we come to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking at chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. You'll find that on page 847 of your pew Bible if you're using that. Uh, the title of this series, we've been looking at the fact that Jesus is King and what that means for our lives. And so we're coming this morning to a passage that deals very directly with that, uh, with that central proclamation that Jesus, in fact, is King. We see that right on the surface uh, this morning here in Mark chapter 11. Let's pray together and we'll come to the text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, our time together this morning. We thank you that, um, that you are here. We thank you as we have been reminded uh, that you are God, that you are high and lifted up, but that you allow us to come and be in your presence to worship you together, and it's a gift. So thank you. We pray now for this part of our service where we come to your word. Pray that you would speak to us, that you would open up uh, ears that have um, gotten clogged like ours. We pray that you would soften hearts that tend uh, to get stiff and unyielding again, like ours. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would hold before our eyes again today uh, the beauty and majesty of Jesus and the beauty and majesty of the gospel that we are found forgiven in him. So we thank you and we look to you in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. Uh, the, well, a couple things about what we're looking at this morning. This fact that, that Jesus is king, it's a little ironic given the last couple weeks, is worldwide we see this, this giant upswell against uh, autocrats. Right in favor of democracy, and, and, and rightly so. In our fallen world, democracy is certainly a great gift. But maybe that makes it harder for us to put our finger on the fact that in the world of Scripture, as we look at it, what we actually ultimately need most is a king, the right king, our heavenly king. Because in uh, Scripture, God is portrayed to us as a king, one that we can trust one that we can lean on, and one who is acting always for our good, for us and not against us, as he draws us into his kingdom. So in the biblical world, the idea of a king is exactly what we need. And that's what's front and center for us here uh, in this passage this morning. 
the, uh, this is called the, this passage is called the triumphal entry. That's what's happening here. And if you're familiar with this passage or around church at certain points in the year, you know this is usually preached at Palm Sunday, the Sunday right before Easter. And it just highlights for us as, as we come to this passage in February that, uh, and we will be preaching about the resurrection from Mark on Easter two months from now, that a lot happens in these next several chapters of Mark. In fact, this, the, what's called the Holy Week of, between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday actually takes up a third of the book of Mark. Uh, it is uh, it, it incredibly central to what Mark wants us to know, as well as the other gospel writers. In all the gospels, the, the last week of Jesus' life takes up this inordinate place in the scope of what we're told about his ministry and his life. Uh, we see here him as he enters into Jerusalem in this final week as things become for his ministry come into this very sharp focus of who is Jesus, what is he all about, what's it mean, going to mean to follow him, and what is going to become of him. Uh, this, you, you'll see there's a title in, in your bulletin. It's, it's not titled well. I had to give Kathy a title this week before I knew what the sermon was actually about. So let me uh, suggest... <laughs> A better, uh, a, that happens sometimes. Let me suggest you a, be, a better title. Uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning is, is, is the fact that Jesus is the real king. He is our real king. And we're going to see three things about Jesus, this our real king. That he's the deliberate king. He's the surprising king. And finally, he is the trustworthy king. So first, uh, Jesus is the deliberate king. Again, this, this scene represents this pivotal moment in the, in the gospel of Mark and in the ministry of Jesus. The previous two-thirds of Mark have all been uh, ultimately pointing in one way or another to, to this very week, to Jesus' trip to Jerusalem and to what he was going to do and accomplish once he arrived there. And so here we are as he comes in Jerusalem at the beginning of this climactic week. Uh, and as we do that, one of the things that we just see here this morning is that as Jesus steps into this phase of his ministry, he is being incredibly deliberate. This is not, things are not just sort of happening to him. The world is not just flying by. He's not just being caught up in kind of this religious fervor and excitement as he enters into Jerusalem. He's not going to be caught unawares by the fact that he's going to be handed over to the authorities in a week. Jesus is actually very carefully plotting his steps here. He's a a deliberate king. And we see that in a couple ways. First and foremost, we, we see it here in verses 2 through 7 when it tells the story about this, the colt, this donkey. And if, as you read that, you notice is, uh, you know, just as the last week of Jesus' life takes up a third of the book, well, there's like six verses here you know, devoted to all that's going on with this donkey. What's, what's happening? Um, it, it, you know, he, Jesus is coming and, and he pauses before coming into Jerusalem uh, along with throngs of other pilgrims who were coming up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast as they were called to do by God in the Old Testament. And he pauses in order to make a very specific statement. He pauses not because, you know, he's tired after a long climb up the hill to Jerusalem and he's looking around for a donkey to ride on. He's, he's doing something symbolic here. And so what he does is he tells uh, his, two of his disciples to go into the nearby town. He says, go, you know, walk down. You're going to come down the street and you're going to see a donkey, uh, you know, the colt of a donkey tied up to the street. And I want you to go untie it. And if anybody asks you what you're doing, just say, you know, the Lord has need of it. We'll, we'll be right back with it and then, and then bring it back. Or you can kind of imagine maybe what the, the disciples are thinking about this. Uh, you know, if you're w w with a friend or you put yourself in, you know, modern day sh your shoes there, you know, Jesus says to you, okay, look, I want you to, 
I want you to go over in that neighborhood down there, and you're going to see a car parked on the side of the road. And you're going to find the keys in it. And so I want you to climb in and start it up. And if anybody says anything, just say, hey, Jesus needs it. He'll bring, he'll bring it right back. Good luck with that. Uh, but, but that's exactly what happens. Jesus sends them on this mission to go and get uh, this donkey, this colt. Well, Jesus is planning his entrance into Jerusalem. And if you were to go and read in, some, in the other Gospels about this very week and this entrance into Jerusalem, you, you would notice that in many ways Mark, our account here, is very spare and sparse compared uh, to the other accounts, very much downplaying some of the details. But this act of Jesus's, of, of getting this cult, is in all four Gospels. And the other Gospels uh, quote a passage from Zechariah, from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, a prophecy about this. Quoted in the other Gospels, here's, here's what Zechariah 9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see what's happening here? Jesus is picking this incredibly symbolic picture of who he is in order to enter into Jerusalem. He is going back to this prophecy in Zechariah 9 that when the king, the messianic king, comes, the real king of Jerusalem comes, he will come in this way, mounted on a donkey, not on a war horse, but on this uh, young beast of burden. That's how he would come into his city. And that is the message that the people in this passage get because they know their Bible and they know that when Jesus comes this way, he is doing something very deliberate. There's something that he wants the people around him to know and it is this, that he is king. That's his declaration as he comes seated on this donkey. Jesus here in his deliberateness, he's kind of like a... um, if any of you play chess and you've had the experience of playing chess with someone who is much, much better at chess than you, than you are, uh, Jesus is like this chess master. He's, he's aligning the pieces. He's directing the game. He's setting everything up for his final move as he comes into Jerusalem to proclaim who he really is. So he's being deliberate in what he's choosing to do here. Now, the second thing we're going to see, he's also deliberate right at the end of this passage in verse 11. We'll see more of why next week as we get into what Jesus does next. But he knows what he does after coming in through the gates of Jerusalem. He's being uh, hailed and proclaimed uh, as king, essentially. And what does he do next? The crowds seemingly disperse, and he goes to the temple. He goes to the very heart of Jewish worship, and he says that he looks around. And that it's the end of the day, so he and his disciples, they kind of they look around, they survey the scene, and they, they leave the city for the night. Pretty anticlimactic, but what, what is actually happening here is that Jesus comes, and he comes to the very heart of Jewish worship to look around, and essentially with this question, uh, are God's people following him? Is the worship that's being offered here the kind of worship that God calls for? Are God's people really ready for the coming of his king? And he looks around and he goes out. And we're going to see next week that the next morning he comes in and all of Jerusalem will be in upheaval as Jesus comes into the temple and overthrows the money uh, lenders' tables as he begins to drive them out of the temple, as he begins to step into his role as the king who has come to put things straight. But for now, our scene ends with him a glance before nightfall as he looks around to assess what is 
the real state of things at the heart of Jerusalem. You see, Jesus is coming in deliberately, almost undercover, but deliberately. And let me just ask you this. Do you recognize even now uh, that Jesus is at work deliberately in your life as well? Do you know that if Jesus is your king, then he is doing something in your life even today? Now, that might feel uh, random and unhinged in your life right now. Maybe all the pieces, you're at a moment when all the pieces feel up in the air. You look around at the things that are happening to you and around you and are simply confused. Uh, But Jesus is not confused. He is at work. He is at work deliberately in your life. You see, even the disciples here, caught up in the moment, and as we're going to see with the crowds praising Jesus, even then, they don't, they don't fully grasp the real gravity and, and uh, significance of the moment that they are living through. They don't fully understand how deliberate Jesus is actually being here. In fact, it only becomes crystal clear for them in retrospect. And here we read Mark telling the story from, with uh, you know, the clarity of hindsight as he looks back and tells this part of the story of the king coming in. Uh, but we're going to see that the people in a moment were confused about what this king could actually be. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing, but we see here looking back that he was being very deliberate. <laughs> Can you say the same thing maybe for moments in your life, if not this moment, maybe some of them in the past, where you've been in that place where uh, nothing seemed to make sense, where pieces and facts seemed to be falling apart, where you were convinced uh, on days that God could not bring anything good out of this? If you had those moments of living through those and being able to look back and see God knew exactly what he was doing. He was here every moment, even though I had no idea what he was up to. Is it possible that that's what he's doing with you right now in the middle of uh, that challenging relationship in your life or in the middle of that financial struggle or your health issue? Can you see even now and have you been able to see in the past God's hand at work even when all seems lost that he in fact is deliberately at work in you. There's a story, um, a good portion of the end of the book of Genesis is dedicated to the story of Joseph, the life of Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob. And uh, in Joseph's life, seemingly everything went wrong. He was uh, sort of the annoying, stuck-up, cocky younger brother who threw it in his brother's face. And ultimately, they got so tired of him, uh, they considered killing him, but instead they threw him in a pit. And when some slave traders came by, they sold him into slavery. Joseph's life was falling apart. He was taken in slavery to Egypt, uh, where he became uh, the servant of the captain of the guard until one day he was uh, framed and accused of attacking his master's wife, though he hadn't, and he was thrown into the dungeon. And everything was falling apart. After being in the dungeon a couple years, he was granted this opportunity to interpret a dream for some other prisoners. And they were released from prison, and he asked them to remember him when they found their freedom again, and they didn't. They forgot. He was lost. Till finally, one day, Pharaoh has a dream that needs to be interpreted, and these, this servant who was freed remembers Joseph, brings him out. Joseph is able to interpret a dream for Pharaoh, basically telling him that God was going to bring a terrible famine, and so that he must store up. Because of that, Joseph was finally, at this point in his life, he was elevated to become the second-hand person, second man to Pharaoh. And through all of that, God saved all of Joseph's family. 
from starvation, from ruin. He brings them to Egypt where they are, uh, where they are rescued. And his brothers are understandably terrified over what they have done when they realize this brother they left for dead is now the second in command of Egypt. And here's what Joseph says to them. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What does Joseph say as he looks back over the events of his life? He says, God was deliberately at work here, though at every moment it felt like everything was falling apart. The same God who is at work in Joseph's life, the same deliberate Jesus who comes into the city of Jerusalem, is the same deliberate Jesus who is at work in our lives as well. See, he's the deliberate king. But the second thing we see here is that he is the surprising king. The surprising king. This is called, this passage again is called the triumphal entry. But if you were to go and read any of the other gospel accounts of the triumphal entry, you would see that the other accounts look a lot more triumphal than this one does. You, you, you see much more about um, the excitement of the crowd. There, at one point in John, it says, as the crowds come in proclaiming Jesus, the uh, Pharisees, the leaders of the day, look at each other and say, what are we going to do? The whole world has gone after him. But here again in Mark, we see this very pared down story of this king. But that's what's happening, this, this triumphal entry where they come and they are singing Jesus' praises as they see him in light of the promises of Scripture. Look at, look at what they sing to him. Uh, they say, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The hymn they are singing comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. They are singing the words of Scripture about Jesus. They are praising him in his coming. They are praising, in the, in, to whatever degree they can grab hold of it, this picture of this king who has come to them. But they're going to find this king, this entering king, is their surprising king. Because he's not going to act like the king they expected. In fact, this crowd who is singing Hosanna, which in uh, Hebrew means save or, or please save. There's, it's, it's this cry for salvation. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A week later, Jerusalem will be ringing with the sound, not of those praises, but with the refrain of crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because this king who has come is their surprising king. They have expectations of who Jesus is and what he will do for them. They expected the king that once he came that he would be a conquering king, a political liberator, that he would come and finally free them from the oppression of the Romans, that Israel would finally be a free nation again, that they would be able to worship as they chose, that they would not have the presence of these foreign soldiers on their soil. And Jesus ultimately didn't live up to their expectations. See, they had looked back to the Old Testament and gotten bits and pieces of who this king was going to be. And they had mixed those together and come up with their picture of who he was to be. And they found that the way they put the pieces together was not at all the way Jesus was putting the pieces together. You might have seen in the news uh, over the past couple weeks, not in the Middle East this time, but in a story that broke this past week in a... In a um, weekly radio series called This American Life that tells uh, kind of these, these anecdotes and stories about, about, di about people's lives. And, and the, the stories are, the episodes are usually centered around some kind of theme. And the, the theme this week was, was kind of broadly about authenticity. And in the first half of the story, they, uh, it tells the story of, of a recipe, which, um, you know, maybe you get excited about recipes, maybe you don't. They're not often, uh, you know, groundbreaking news. But, but let, let me tell you a little bit about this recipe, and I'll... I've got a copy for it if, of it if you want it later. You don't need to write down all the, <clears throat> all the ingredients here. 
Two parts to this recipe. One uh, is for a, a kind of syrup, and here's the stuff that goes into that. I'll spare you the amounts, but uh, fluid extract of cocoa, citric acid, caffeine, an unbelievable amount of sugar, water, lime juice, vanilla, and caramel. Okay, that, that's not really the, the special part of the recipe. The other part of the recipe is <clears throat> the recipe that's revealed in the story of what is known as Merchandise 7X. Top secret Merchandise 7X, which is brought to light in the story. And here's what's in Merchandise 7X. Eight ounces of food-grade alcohol, 20 drops of orange oil, 30 drops of lemon oil, 10 drops of nutmeg oil, five drops of coriander oil, 10 drops of neroli oil. I don't know what that is, but you need 10 drops. <laughs> and finally, 10 drops of cinnamon oil. And if you mix this correctly and cook it correct, whatever you do with it, at the end of the day, what you end up with is Coca-Cola. And this has been one of the most closely guarded secrets for well over 100 years now. And in This American Life, they tell the story of finding the notebook of Everett Beale, who was this pharmacist that came up with this uh, with this concoction that became Coca-Cola, and there's a picture of it on the website, and here is the original recipe for Coca-Cola. Now, as you might imagine, the Coke company, uh, Coca-Cola, denies this. They don't put any credence in this, but what they did in this story is they took the recipe and they took it to people that know how to do something with this in order to make Coke and see if, they could re if this was really it, if they could really match it. So they, they made this concoction, and their first round of it, they found that it was terrible. <laughs> and, and what they discovered was they realized that the recipe that was given here was, uh, you know, the, the ingredients, orange oil, net, orange oil nutme nutmeg oil, all of these ingredients uh, are much more refined now because of modern, uh, you know, processing. So what they did, they, they started the process of cutting the ratios and trying to play with it. And finally, they came up with something they thought tasted like Coke. And they did this taste test, and lots of people thought it really was Coke. And people who really love Coke, though, were able to tell that it wasn't quite it. <laughs> so what happened? Well, we, we don't know exactly. I mean, maybe, maybe they still haven't cut the ingredients like they should. Maybe they somehow didn't mix them together. But whatever they did with this recipe didn't produce the drink that they were expecting. Whatever they mixed together was not, in fact, the real thing, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> The trick with bad puns is that they'd be subtle. It just came out too much. <laughs> they mixed the ingredients and didn't, it did not turn into what they hoped it would be. And what happens here? The people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem here, as they welcome in this king, they have put together the ingredients of the Old Testament, this picture of who the, the Messianic king was going to be. And it was not, in fact, the real thing or the real king. Their picture of who Jesus was supposed to be did not line up with what God was actually doing in their midst. They expected this incredibly powerful deliverer. Instead, what they find over the course of this next week is that Jesus comes and his road to victory is not the road they would have chosen at all. It was not defeating the Romans and driving them out. In fact, Jesus' road to victory, his way of being Messiah and King, looked a lot more like failure than it did like success. Because a week later, the crowds are crying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus had foretold that this victory of his would come not through military might as they anticipated. It would only come through dying. It would only come through weakness. See, what Jesus 
was telling them was that the way they were mixing the ingredients was not right at all. And one of the things that Jesus brought in that they did not see and did not know how to put together was the picture not only of this son of David, this rightful messianic king, but also interwoven with that, the Old Testament picture from Isaiah of the suffering servant, that this king would be the one who would come and suffer and die for his people, that that is how he would win their liberation, that that is how he would come and bring the rescue and victory that they most needed. And they could not hear that. In fact, his own disciples couldn't hear it. In spite of the fact in the past three chapters, Jesus has told his disciples exactly this three different times. He tells them that in uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, and most recently in chapter 10. Listen to what he says in chapter 10, beginning at verse 32, as he's teaching the, the disciples on their way to this moment in Jerusalem. He says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And time and again, his disciples just don't understand because in their minds and in the minds of the people, a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. It could not possibly exist. This is not what God was going to do with his king. It couldn't possibly be. But you see, that was what Jesus was going to do. Because he was telling a surprising story. He was a surprising king. It was surprising for them. And it's surprising for us as well. What about the work of this Jesus, this deliberate Jesus in your life? Are you finding that maybe this work is surprising for you as well, even as you look around and see him doing what you would not do for yourself, bringing things into your life that you would not choose for yourself, just as Jesus himself was taking on aspects of his ministry of suffering and dying that his disciples would not have chosen for themselves? Those things in your life when you look at them and say, God cannot possibly be at work in this, they may be the very places where God is doing his most important work in your life. The most significant things that he has to do in you. That perhaps God is using your weakness, your brokenness, and even the suffering in your life to do some of his most central and beautiful things in you. It doesn't seem that way to you now. But are you sure you're mixing the ingredients correctly? Are you sure you got it in all the right proportions? Are you sure you know what you're really making? Or are we going to trust that Jesus is at work and he knows what he's making? He knows the recipe. and He's going to make it right. Can we trust that this surprising king is working in surprising ways in our own lives as well? So we've got this Jesus, this deliberate king and surprising king. But the last thing that, that I think we need to rest on here is that he is the trustworthy king. Because that's really the question here, isn't it? If we're going to be able to, if we're going to, be able to take him at his word that, he, um, that he's deliberate in our lives, that he is doing something even in surprising ways that we would never choose for ourselves, it all hinges on this. Can we really trust him? Can we trust that Jesus is who he says he is? Can we trust him to do this work that he says he's doing in us. Well, back to This American Life. The first half of the story this week was on Coca-Cola. The second half 
tells another story. It tells a story about John Reznikov. Uh, John Reznikov uh, deals in uh, historical items. He, he buys and sells them. He authenticates documents that they're really original or false. And, you know, that this is kind of his business. In fact, the, as they interviewed him, they were in his office in Connecticut, and they're looking around, and uh, you know, you open up a filing cabinet here, and, and he's got Abraham's, uh, Abraham Lincoln's spectacles in his filing cabinet. Over there under that pile of books is Abraham Lincoln's desk, which the story says goes for $350,000. So if you want information on that afterwards, let me know. Uh, over in the corner, laying up against, leaning up against the wall is Annie Oakley's gun, and on a shelf is Hemingway's typewriter. Okay, he is this, is, this is his business. This is what he does. And this guy, John Reznikov, tells about something that happened about 15, 20 years before that almost totally destroyed his life. And it came into his life in uh, the year 1992. He met a guy named Lex Cusack, who brought some stamps for him to authenticate. And over time, over a number of months, he and this guy Lex become friends. They get to know each other. Uh, you know, they, they do stuff as couples with their wives. They're, they become good friends. And one of the things he, le he learns about this man Lex over time is that he served in the Navy. He was a pilot in the Vietnam War. And at one point, he was actually shot down over hostile territory. He survived you know, in a lake, underwater breathing through a reed tube. He was, he was highly decorated. In fact, at one point during their friendship, they, they, went to, they went and visited the Naval Academy because one of their relatives was being inducted as a, a first-year Naval student, Academy student. And in the midst of that, uh, John is there in, or excuse me, this, his friend Lex is there in his uh, white officer's uniform with all his decorations, and they're walking together you know, down the, you know, through the crowds, and everywhere people are saluting him. Uh, and he, John, his, his own father had served in the military, and he had this incredibly high respect, and he was amazed that he had this friend now, this decorated war hero. Well, over a number of months, it turns out that his friend's father was a lawyer in Chicago and had passed away, and as Lex began to dig through his papers, he found that at some point his father had done a little bit of work for the mob. Uh, that there were papers there that uh, will go back to work that he did for Marilyn Monroe. Uh, and there were papers that also tied all those pieces together with John F. Kennedy. And they knew at that point that they were on this historical find of momentous uh, import. And so they begin to have these documents authenticated, and, and they all check out. And uh, over time, they begin to sell them. They're working with uh, a, a movie company to pr produce a book about this find and a movie. Uh, and eventually, what happens is uh, his friend Lex gets invited to go on Dateline with Tom Brokaw. In the midst of this interview, which was meant to be kind of the start of the media launch for this, Brokaw begins to ask him questions that become more and more leading. And as what he realizes is uh, Tom Brokaw, they've done their own research on this and found their own set of experts. And there is hole after hole after hole in their story. And the documents which had been authenticated turn out actually to be absolutely false. And this guy Lex just falls apart in the middle of this interview because he doesn't know what's happened. Well, what happens over the next number of months, we, they find out, is that John confronts his friend and finds out that his friend Lex had, in fact, forged all of these documents, that he's been playing this story for a while, and he almost got away with it. Lex goes to uh, prison for 10 years. John is cleared because he didn't know what was going on. But he says, even to this day, that he has incredible trouble trusting people. Can I really take somebody at their word? It, all, it, it, it blew apart his marriage. It just about blew apart his career. And now he looks back saying, I put my trust in this, and look what happened. 
And he pinpoints this one day when he sees his friend in a uniform that proclaimed something about who he is and what he stood for. And it turns out that he never served in the Navy. And no one knows where he got that uniform. And everyone saluting him that day had no idea who they were actually saluting. See, it matters where you put your trust and who you believe. Jesus comes into the city not wearing a white uniform, but riding a donkey, proclaiming the same essential thing, I am king, I am king. Can we trust him? That is something you're going to have to decide for yourself. If I could convince us all of it, then everyone would trust Jesus, wouldn't they? What do we have? We have the testimony of Scripture saying that Jesus, in fact, is trustworthy. We have the words of Zechariah hundreds of years before proclaiming what this king would be like and how he would come. We see Jesus time and again in his ministry stepping into fulfilling the words of prophecy. We see Jesus saying some of the most compelling things ever said by any human being. We see him going uh, to death and to suffering rather than to the kingly rule they expected. We read in the pages of Scripture that he was raised from the dead, that he is, in fact, king, a king like we could not possibly imagine, and that he rules even now and even today. That is the story of Scripture. Are you going to trust it? Well, the Bible does say that he is our trustworthy king. But let me just ask you this. If you get that, that he is king and he is trustworthy, how are we going to respond to him? What are we going to do if this is true, that he is the king he claims to be, that he is trustworthy, and that he is deliberate, even when we can't see it? That he's working in surprising ways in our lives, even though everything in us screams that's, that things are falling apart? What's it going to mean for us to respond? Well, we see two things here, two glimpses of this that we get in our passage. One comes in verses 8 through 10 as we see the response of the crowd. Now, again, this crowd doesn't know all that they're proclaiming, and many of them will fall away in the next week. But at this very moment, what they are doing is exactly right. What do they do? They take off their jackets, their cloaks. They throw them onto the ground so as this king comes, the feet of his donkey don't even have to touch the dust of the earth. What do they do? They sing to him, save, save, Hosanna. Blessed, exalted is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What are they doing? They are crying out to this coming king and worshiping him, giving thanks to him, giving praise to him. They are responding with a heart of worship. What would it be like for us to respond this way in worship to our king, our king who has come? What would it be like to see worship not as discrete, simply as discrete activities in your week? Okay, like I, I came to church on Sunday morning and went to Sunday morning worship. Uh, I, I got up early in the morning and I read the Bible and I prayed. I had personal worship. Those, those indeed are worship and are good things. But what, what, what if uh, what our king is pushing us to is actually something more fundamental than that? Not just these things that we do during the week. Not just these activities that we accumulate around ourselves. But a heart that's transformed in such a way that we, that we exude worship. That worship becomes the driving force of our life. That becomes the driving passion of our life. That we are, see ourselves in relationship to this king all of our life laid at his feet. And so, of course, we come on Sunday morning and sing his praise. Of course, we pray. Of course, we read scripture. Of course, we do these things. But also, of course, we love our neighbors. And, of course, we forgive those who do us wrong around us. 
Of course, we have hearts that are softened now that we might love others in ways we didn't think were imaginable. Do you see what he's pushing us to? Do you see what we're called to here? That we would have a heart that actually exudes worship, that that would be the stuff of our lives. And maybe it would be good this week for you to do what I'm doing even today as I thought as we sang some of our hymns. And remember, for me, I get to do this twice every Sunday. And some, some weeks I think that's because my heart is particularly slow. And so uh, I, I need that much time to warm up. But even as I sat singing this morning, remembering our God really is great. He, he really is king. He really does demand everything of us. And that that is not an oppressive demand. It's an invitation to us. Our God deserves to be worshipped. And I look around at the pieces of my life and go, really? You're inviting me into that? And what do we hear proclaimed to us again and again? The goodness of this crucified king who came to forgive us so that we could be brought in. Not because we're good, but in spite of the fact that we are not. And you see, when we get those glimpses, we get a picture again of what it means that that might really become a seed in us of worship that could grow and flourish. That we could have lives that are transformed by the fact that we live before the very face of God in worship. They respond in worship, and secondly, they respond in following him. They go through the gates. Somehow the crowds disperse. And who's with him at the end of the day as they go to the temple and then return to Bethany? His 12 disciples. These men who still haven't put all the pieces together, they still don't exactly understand what Jesus is up to, but they know that he is where they have to be. And so they will follow him. And they'll follow him this next week as he heads not into the crowd's favor, but as he heads right up to his death. And though they will be scattered, they will be regathered as they follow this crucified and risen king. And that's where we're left with our trustworthy king, that we too are called to worship and to follow. For he is our king. He is the real king. Let's pray.